tuning in to the Mind Matters podcast, a production of the University of Kentucky Sanders Brown Center on Aging, where we focus on research as it relates to brain health. I'm April Stauffer, your host. Today is International Day of Women and Girls in Science. That allows us the opportunity to honor women's significant achievements in science and focus on girls entering science, technology, engineering, and math. We need more women in these careers as women are still underrepresented on a global scale. To celebrate today, I've invited Dr. Shannon McCauley to join me. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. Shannon is a new faculty member of Sanders Brown and a relatively new faculty member at the University of Kentucky Department of Physiology. However, she is not new to research. Shannon, can you tell our listeners about yourself? Certainly, yeah. So I um, got into research almost probably 25 years ago, and I actually kind of stumbled into it. So I, um, while I was um, an undergraduate at Middlebury College, I didn't really know that research could be a career. Um, I was always deeply interested in science. I was always a tinkerer. I like to use my hands. I like to solve problems. And I think I was just naturally curious, if you will. And um, I think like a lot of people who found home in science, you know, in in high school, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, And then I went off to college and my grades quickly showed that doctor was not going to be a path for me. So um, I had a lot of challenges in in college with, you know, and and I think um, a joke is that uh, I have uh, almost all the letters on my transcript um, and and even failed cell biology. So I, I think what one thing that happens a lot with women is we doubt our intellect, we doubt our, our place. Um, and I've certainly suffered from that still challenge, you know, with this, this concept of imposter syndrome. But I got this opportunity to work in a laboratory um, with Dr. Bull Ito uh, and do circadian rhythm research. And it just clicked for me. And so I was far along. I, it was, um, you know, my senior year. I had no idea what I was going to do after college. Um, and I just really loved it. And I was very lucky. I had a, an uncle who has actually or is um, a, a professor emeritus at UC Irvine. And I didn't have much contact um, with him growing up just because we were geographically separate. And at my grandfather's funeral, we actually had a conversation about science. And that's when I realized that he was a researcher, not a traditional assistant professor, professor, you know, with the jacket and the leather arm patches as I had thought all my life and he kind of um you know said you know what do you like about science I said well I like doing I like thinking you know but I'm not smart enough to do this and he's like well that's nonsense you know he's like science is all about failure you've gotten that out of the way you know and so maybe we can move you know figure out moving forward what you really like about it and he kind of gave me this um you know, like choose your own adventure approach to the next part of my career post-college, which was if you like the tinkering and you like, um, you know, that part of it in the lab work, he's like, don't get your PhD because it'll pull you out of that. Um, He's like, if you very much enjoy, you know, the thinking of it and you get frustrated with people telling you what to do, he's like, you need to get your PhD. And so I ended up going to work for, um, I took a temp job actually at a biotech company um, up in Boston and um, and I fell in love with science. I had the best mentor, super supportive. He saw right away that I was more than a pair of hands and he developed me and my career. He pushed me to go to Wash U. It was his alma mater, which is where I ended up going for my PhD, which was just one of the best decisions I ever made. You know, I'm a New England native. So going to St. Louis was a little scary, 
Um, but, you know, the, the breadth of neuroscience research there was just fantastic. And so I ended up getting my PhD um, at, uh, you know, the universe or Washington University. Um, I stayed on to postdoc there with Dave Holtzman, who is one of the premier Alzheimer's researchers. And he gave me um, an opportunity to, to jump onto a brand new project that wasn't developed in his lab, looking at metabolism in Alzheimer's. And he pretty much said, here it is, run with it. And, and that's what launched my career. I started my own lab at Wake Forest University in 2017 and then had a fantastic opportunity to move to University of Kentucky last year. And so that's how I ended up here. I love hearing about all of the mentors that have been yes. involved in your life. And it's kind of, you know, you asked the question, where would I be without all of these mentors? Yes. And thinking about the individuals that you mentor, like what have yes. you learned through that mentorship process and what are you giving yes. to those that you mentor? Yeah, so one of the, the best things that I learned is that somebody, a mentor who has the ability to look at you as an individual and differentiate how they mentor you personally um, while being equitable is, is the best thing that, the, that you can have happen. I was very lucky that every lab I entered, whether it was at Genzyme Corporation and Mark Sands Lab during my PhD or Dave Holtzman, they just saw me as a scientist, right? They didn't see me as female science. They didn't see statistics. And they were actually impervious to, I, I feel like, a lot of bias that could have held me back. And they just saw potential. And so I think that that's something that I hold very, very dear. Like the dear to me, the the idea that you should differentiate your mentorship style and that and that to like let people run, like let people go. And I think I've, I've done a lot of reflection. I mentor a lot. I, it's probably why I'm in academia, to be honest. You know, I had a great experience in industry with, and that my goal is CNS therapeutics. So more of a lightly, more likely path would have been going back to industry, but training the next generation of scientists is, is, is so super important. So, you know, one of the things I think you can do as a mentor is, you know, you kind of have to wear many hats. You have to be a mentor, you have to be a coach. And then once the your students or trainees aren't in the room, you also have to be a sponsor. And so I think that I've had mentors that have done that um, very, very well. I've had some that haven't, but you know, st sticking to the positives, I, I realized that I was given a lot of opportunities because people put, gave me that option. So I try to do that as much as I can. You know, if I can give my students a talk. I'd rather them discuss the work than me discuss their work. They're the ones driving it. They get ownership. And then that boosts their confidence, which is so important in science when you're being knocked down all the time. That sounds like mentorship that really reflects good leadership. It sounds like you're not interested in any fame or personal recognition, but actually empowering others that you're working with. That's incredible. I know with the Macaulay Lab, you went from Wake to Kentucky and you brought I'm guessing so, several of your lab mm -hmm. members with you. How has that been for them? I was really lucky. So we were at kind of a really interesting crossroads. You know, I had been at Wake Forest for about six years. So that's kind of the life of like a lot of trainees. And so 
right before we left, one of my undergrads, you know, defended her honors thesis and she was super talented. I had two of my first PhD students, you know, defend one of my master's students defended her work and actually came on here to do her PhD work. And then I had another student um, who he was starting his third year. And, you know, and I gave them the option, you know, and then I had some people for other circumstances that um, like were staying behind. And so it was a huge challenge last spring to just make sure that everybody had a place. Right. And so that's really what I prioritized. And then for me, I, again, Riley Ehrman was a master's student who, um, you know, came to me to start our PhD in physiology. Nick Constantino was continuing his and, and, and neuroscience. And then I have this unbelievably wonderful um, staff scientist lab manager, Andy Snipes, who just is like the yin to my yang. And so I can do what I do. He's just amazing. But I think all of us, I, you know, found this as just a tremendous opportunity. You know, there's so many great resources here. It's such a, almost like a sleeper school, but the infrastructure, um, the research infrastructure here is, is tremendous. Um, there are so many opportunities. We do a lot with metabolism, sleep, Alzheimer's, you know, omics. And, and the breadth of research at Kentucky is has, has just been intoxicating, I think, across the board, you know? So I think, yeah, moving is hard, period, right? But I think transitioning to some new environment that actually reinvigorates your love of what you're doing and gives you new opportunities to see research in a different way, all of us see this as a tremendous plus. Um, and they wouldn't have come with me if 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 not, you know? Um, you know, we had other places that they could be, um, you know, and, and even Riley turned down some pretty awesome PhD programs because she just wasn't finished with her work yet. So I think there's just, you know, I think Kentucky has a lot to offer and, and we've been just very grateful to be here. Yeah. At Sanders Brown, we take a collaborative approach. We yes. have so many different professors, different faculty members coming from various yes. departments um, mm -hmm. across campus. So so many great things are being done. I noticed um, you have a Macaulay Lab webpage, and yeah. on that page, I don't know how up to date it is, but it shows 46 publications that you've yeah. been a part of. Tell us about all of your work and some of the yeah. most, the things that you're most proud of. For sure. So I actually am unlike a lot of researchers, I like to do everything and see how they interact. And so, and I take that approach, I have a, a very relationship-based approach with my um, science. So people are important to me. My, you know, my trainees are important. My peers are important to me. And I think I do best when I work in teams. I'm a big proponent of team science. And I think in this day and age with how much expertise is out there and in science, how much it's changing, that's that's really where you can elevate your game and have a broader impact. And so when I started, again, I started college, I um, stumbled into circadian rhythms and, and very basic um, thermoregulatory you know, studies. And when I went off to Genzyme Corporation, their focus was actually rare genetic diseases called lysosomal storage diseases, you know, that um, that uh, I, on, on average, they're very rare. Each disease is very rare, but as a class of disorders, they actually impact a lot of individuals. And, and I was, I've always been struck with these diseases because we know what causes them, but we still have issues treating them, right? They're all caused by these lysosomal deficiencies. And so you can replace the enzymes and, um, 
and, and have good therapeutic value. But the brain has always been kind of this really interesting and unique site where things don't get in. And so I've always kind of had this love affair with the brain. And so a lot of the work I did at Genzyme was focused on, there was a lot of new models on these different um, lysosomal storage diseases. So it was characterizing, you know, how much of the models reca recapitulate the human condition and what can we get for therapeutic endpoints. And then we did a variety of gene, cell, and protein-based therapeutics to try and test them before the company pushed them forward to the clinic. And so it was kind of that model that I think of translational neuroscience, of, of truly understanding mechanistic work from a from a bench to bedside that that's, has kept me, you know, in academic research. When I went off to my grad school, I worked for Mark Sands, who I collaborated with at Genzyme, and we continued a lot of this work in Batten disease, which is still very near and dear to my heart. They actually oftentimes call it as a, a dementia of childhood, you know, because these these kids, you know, are diagnosed super early and they go on and it's fatal, but it's a very quick and progressive disease. But a lot of the, the things that we learned about how that disease progresses has, you know, kind of fueled how I think about Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And then um, when I went off and, and, and joined Dave's lab, one of the ideas was, is we knew changes in brain excitability, how neurons fire can make amyloid and tau the pathogenic proteins in Alzheimer's. And we were curious, knowing that type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease are comorbidities that also are associated with changes in energy metabolism, like how does metabolism fit into this puzzle? And then for the last, you know, decade, um, you know, 15 years almost now, that's what we've been tackling. And, and we're looking at it in terms of neurovascular coupling. So how the, the blood vessels and the energy supply to the brain interact with neuronal health or how things modifiable risk factors like sleep factors into metabolism and, and Alzheimer's. Um, and so we're kind of across the board, but, you know, there's these, these commonalities where, you know, because I worked in lysosomal storage diseases, um, as a classically trained neuroscientist, I consider the body and the brain interaction. You know, what's the periphery doing with the brain, not just the brain itself? Um, or how does the vasculature interact with the neurons? Because neurons are really energetically demand. They are super divas, right? And so the, they need the juice. And so like, how does all this interact, you know, and, and, and maybe it's easier to target vasculature than actually getting something directly to a neuron. So I feel like even though it, my all the publications I've had and all these amazing cross-collaborative projects looks diffuse, it actually gives more of a holistic understanding to the disease process and 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 what we can target in in a in a human. Hopefully, it sounds like you've got so many contributions, and you know people are looking for an answer. And Alzheimer's disease is not that no. easy to figure out. No. And the more that we learn, the more questions that we end up asking. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why you come in on the, you know, molecular yeah. scientific side and Sanders yeah. Brown, we, we have, you know, bench science where we have researchers in labs with mice and microscopes and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. then we have a clinic where we actually test medications in humans. Mm -hmm. And so we do it all at Sanders Brown. And that's an exciting thing to be a part of. 1000%, um, you know, one of the, the, the wonderful things about coming here was having that interface, right? Mm -hmm. So Sanders Brown has such a, a strong legacy of, of helping you know, therapeutics get to um, get to the get to the people, right? And understanding how these disease processes in humans 
relates to what we see in our models. And I think one of the things that's really neat is we're coming up on some of these therapeutics and I've already initiated in the past six months, you know, these conversations is like, okay, can we test this in humans? And maybe it's not, again, as you said, this disease is multifaceted, right? There is no one way, one cure. We have to think of it like cancer. There's going to be different types of cancers, different ways you approach it. There's radiation, there's surgery, there's, you know, different, you target different um, uh, molecules based on what a person's background is. And, and I think if we start to understand some things that in isolation can, and can affect a disease process, then in combination, hopefully we will have a cure one day, you know? So I think that's, but that partnership, as you said, is very, very unique with Sanders Brown. So it's, it's exciting for me. Shannon, while I have you on the program today, I need to ask a somewhat personal question. You have over 4,000 followers on your X account, formerly known as Twitter. How have you been so successful at that? I hope in part it's by being authentic. You know, I think, you know, as as you introduced, this is a, a women in science, you know, kind of showcase. And I think there's unique challenges to being a mom, being a wife, being a, a researcher that I, I try to be very open about. I also am just really curious and very excited about science. You know, I love to see other people excel and support other people. I, I really like to connect with other researchers and see how our work can overlap. Um, you know, and, and I like to amplify really cool work going on, um, you know, because I think that ultimately, you know, if you, you, you have to, science is a really hard beast, right? You have to be somewhat egocentric to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and working so hard, but you also have to be somewhat selfless, share and amplify because there is a common goal here. At least for me, it is right. Like one of the most meaningful emails I've ever received in my life was we had, we had done different combination therapies for this rare disorder, Batten disease. And I had a grandmother reach out and say, thank you. And I'll cry. Yeah. I'm a crier, but the fact that this was moving up one to the clinic and that this could impact a human. That's all I need, right? This was, I still have it, you know, hanging up on a board to remind myself of like the days when the grants don't get funded, the papers get rejected. It's frustrating. You're trying to rush home, you know, to help the kids and everything. This is why we do it, right? That's right. So I think just having kind of that authentic presence, I think just is is valued when you do have a lot of superstars or people out for the fame of science. I, you know, I kind of <laughs> think that's funny, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I hope it's authenticity and just a sheer curiosity and excitement for science, you know. Well, your passion certainly comes through on that Thank X you. account and, and in this interview. Um, I think in the lab, sometimes it's easy to forget that what you're doing is about people. And yes. it is um, those reminders, those thank yous, those it yes. makes a difference. And even though we don't have a cure yet, we are working at it and right. um, trying to impact people. So before we sign off, do you have any wisdom for women and girls out there in science? Yeah, I think one, you can do it. 
you know, let your passion drive you and it won't be easy, but find people to support you. And this could be, it doesn't have to be women. It can be men. There's many, you know, um, many people that I know that get me through those days, get me through those, those hard days. They're the people that are on speed dial and you cultivate those people early. You cultivate them when you're still trying and, and, and getting out there. But I, I, I think keep going, find a network, Find, be very selective and choosy about how you select your mentor. And, or, and I'd actually say, choose many mentors. Not everybody can give you everything you want. I think in this day and age, sometimes the burden on a mentor is astronomical to be everything, right? Especially in academic when it's, when it's a little bit more fluid. Um, and so I, I think just find supportive environments. You will find the scientific questions if you feel supported. And then also like this is a, a, a path that's, that you will fail and just be okay with that. You know, I think women, you know, there's societal pressure, personal pressure for just perfection all the time. And I think that also as women, we're not cultivated to be high risk people. And, and I know, you know, one thing that helped me a lot was sports. And I've seen also some of my trainees who are gifted at music, you know, it's taking those risks and putting yourself out there um, and, and picking yourself up that, that moves you forward. And I think that can be a little bit harder for women because we're just not given the same license to try and fail that others do. Um, I think we're under a bigger microscope than others are. And again, this is times 10,000 for underrepresented um, women. And so I think, you know, just finding supportive environment, following your passion, stay curious, and just find a great supportive network is what I would suggest for folks. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for no joining problem. us today. And we'll have some information about Shannon in the comments and how to access her webpage. Thanks for having me. Mind Matters is brought to you by the University of Kentucky Sanders Brown Center on Aging. Our goal is to improve the health of older adults in Kentucky and beyond through research dedicated to understanding the aging process and age-related brain diseases. To learn more about the center, visit our website at https colon forward slash forward slash medicine.uky.edu forward slash centers forward slash SBCOA and follow us on Facebook X formerly known as Twitter and the Sanders Brown Center on Aging YouTube channel.